Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Judean People's Front. Well, the People's Front of Judea. Judean People's Front. Wankers. <laughs> Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. It's another uh, exciting, well, we'll see if it's exciting, episode of the Remnant podcast. And um, um, mostly because I am a slave to my listeners, I have broken what was sort of an informal rule. I did not want to have Charlie Cook on the show until we could be in studio, but the insane demand was too much to bear for me. And so I caved to the peasant mobs. And so to this week we have Charlie Cook. The editor of National Review Online, that's your title now? I can't remember. Yes? It is. Yes. That's right. Or, But do we say National Review Online anymore? No, we say nationalreview.com. I see. Huge change. Yeah. No, that's a... That's... That, you know, religious wars were fought over le- smaller distinctions. Um, but... Uh, we're the People's Front of Judea now. That's right. That's right. Um, and... Speaking of people's front of Judea, uh, you just told us before, in the locker room when the really interesting conversation was happening that you're going to be on a TV with John Cleese tonight, right? I am. I am. I'm doing SE Cup show on HLN, and I just got the rundown, and John Cleese is on it. And I emailed them and said, is he going to be in the studio, or is he just being piped in by satellite? And they said, no, no, he'll be in the studio, so you'll meet him in the green room. Wow. Um, so I'm I'm a little uh, starstruck, pr- pr- sort of preemptively. That's very cool because I just tweeted a John Cleese joke about an hour ago. I guess this guy um, who had said something remotely nice about Ben Shapiro not being a Nazi got flamed and had to completely retract any hint that he had any sympathy for the humanity of Ben Shapiro. And I said, and you read his his apology, and I said it was like watching Kevin Klein hold. John Cleese out a window demanding he <laughs> apologize. I mean, it was just so abject and kind of, kind of like cultural revolution, dunce cap kind of stuff. But that's the nature of the things that we've got these days. Did you follow that thing at all? That controversy? I, I well, I, just before we did this, I opened Twitter and I saw people tweeting about trying to move the Overton window using Ben Shapiro, but I wasn't quite sure what they meant. So it must be that it probably was. Probably was. So first of all. I have a few things I want you to do for us. Um, if you were in the studio, it would be a little easier. I could do this very dramatically and hand you a list. But there are a few words I want you to say. I just want to hear, okay. you, hear, you how, hear how you say them. Don't be self-conscious about it. Just be natural about it. Right. Uh, we'll start. Uh, uh, vitamin, schedule, eight, water. Vitamin, schedule, eight, water. Okay, not the number eight, but as in I ate a ham sandwich. I ate a ham sandwich. Damn it. Okay. Uh, tomato? Tomato. Asia? Asia. Aluminum? Aluminium. Jesus. What's wrong with you? Uh, half? Half. Calf? 
Cough. Water. Water. Ah,、uh, fair enough. Butter. Butter. Carhartt House. <laughs> Carhartt House. <laughs> so now, according to my staff of researchers, someone says that、uh, you're supposed to pronounce that ass, and I don't quite understand that. Do you know what that's about? I have absolutely no idea. You just brought back in me a, a fairly harrowing menu, though、uh, menu、uh, that too memory, Jonah,、uh, with the tomato tomato、uh-huh. issue. Because when I first came to New York and started working at National Review in our old office, there was a, a deli around the corner, and the majority of the staff at the deli were either Hispanic or Asian. I think Chinese originally. It was sort of fifty fifty. Um, and many of them were speaking English as their second language, and I could not get them to understand what I meant by tomato. <laughs> so, so instead of saying tomato or pointing, I was so English at this point that I just didn't have tomato in any sandwich <laughs> or salad that I wanted for three years. <laughs> so you're willing to renounce your your British citizenship, but you're not willing to say tomato. That's right. I still won't do it. But. I thought you believed in assimilation. <laughs> there are just yeah, you know, thanks, Steve King. There are just there are just some things I won't do. I'm afraid. All right, so where to begin? I actually have no idea where to begin. It's been a fairly harrowing day. I did a、um, conversation with Paul Ryan earlier today here at AEI, and I'm still kind of trying to figure out what it was supposed to be about. And I, I, I have this. I mean, I'm a fan of Paul Ryan's, but. I have the sneaking suspicion he just wanted to be on record saying tribalism and the alt right are bad, and he thought that this would be a f- fun venue to do it, and it was all very, very, very strange. But and、uh, so、I'm, I've been running around like a headless chicken. So let's let's、uh, let's sort of ease into this. Why did you come here? I mean, there's a long I... tradition of National Review importing immigrants、uh, that Americans won't do, right? I mean, John O'Sullivan being the most famous one. But yeah, like, why? Why did you decide that you wanted to up, uproot yourself and come to the、uh, United States? Well, there's a there's a general answer to that, and then there's a specific answer. I always, and and this was true long, long before I had any political views at all. I always wanted to move to America. I first visited America in 1987 when I was three, with my family. Obviously, I didn't come on my own, and we went to Disney World and Sea World and that whole Orlando thing. Um, and I said to them afterwards, "I want to live in America. I loved it."、Um, now you might think, "Well, of course you loved it. You were at Disney World. It wasn't real." That's true. But this ardor for the U.S. only grew. We came back the following year to, to Florida as well, and then in the '90s we got into the habit of going to California and Arizona, where we had some family friends. And I would eventually go there for the summer,、uh, especially to, to Arizona. And I just enjoyed everything about it. I liked the openness,、um, how friendly everybody was.、Uh, I liked the weather. I liked the wide roads and the new buildings and the palm trees and the big cars.、Uh, I, I again at this point I had absolutely no political understanding or interest whatsoever. I mean, I, I was so politically—I、um, don't know—ignorant is the right word, but、um, uh, indifferent that even in. 2001, when we came over to go to Florida again, I didn't know who the president was. I had absolutely no idea what had just happened in the election, the Florida recount. This, by the way, was on the news every single day in England. I just didn't have any interest in it.、Uh, I, I was completely tuned out. 
Um, so I, I always wanted to move here. This was always my ambition. I always wanted to become an American, and I can't explain why. Uh, until really, I started becoming more libertarian, more conservative, more conservatarian. We'll get to if that, if you will. <laughs> um, I thought we might, and um, and then my politics and my worldview started to align more closely with uh, with the United States, or at least the the sort of center of gravity was closer here to, to my own than in uh, in the UK, and so once I realized this, I began to consume news from the United States. And I got interested in American politics, especially after 9-11. The first election I really remember following was was in 2004. And I found National Review on the internet. I just started reading it every day. It was useful for my course at university, uh, which was modern history and politics. And then I started agreeing with a lot of it. And uh, I suppose I realized that I was sort of more of an American conservative or, or, or classical liberal. Um, and eventually I got into the habit of reading NR so much that I would read The Corner in the evenings. And there was a posting in 2011 for a summer intern. And I thought, well, I could probably do that. And I applied, got it, and the rest is history. So uh, forgive this long setup for this, but one of my absolute favorite moments there's, – there's, there are you're not a comic book guy, right? You're a Beatles and tech uh, geek, right? But um, yeah. so there's there there every now and then. I think it's true of movies. It's true of music. There are these little weird moments that Im, that sort of imprint on your brain, and they 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 sort of serve as the language for your brain about how you think about some things. And I'm confessing to uh, probably against interest the the weirdness of how I think about things sometimes. But there was a great. A Marvel comic where Godzilla has a cameo appearance, has a guest appearance in a comic book called Red Dinosaur. Um, Red Dinosaur was a giant red Tyrannosaurus Rex-ish dinosaur who was partnered with a little cave boy. And they got into all sorts of interesting adventures. And Godzilla goes back in time. And there's this great sequence of panels where Godzilla is walking around and it's hot and it's sulfuric. And the air is thick with the stench of blood and the air, you know, and he could hear animals that he could eat. And Godzilla looks around and just has this overwhelming sense that, ah, I'm home. And um, uh, and I often think about that when I meet – there's like a, a lot of British people that when they go to warm places – more than like other Germanic, Northern European, whatever people who they're kind of sun addicts in a weird way. And they go off to Portugal and they never go back or they go off to Southern California. You know, Santa Monica's got a big sort of expat British thing going on there. Is How much of this is you go to Florida and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is what like warm sun feels like. And you feel like this is where I'm supposed to be because it, it does seem like there's this weird thing among Brits that maybe I'm not explaining that they just they they so hate their own climate that when they experience when they all of a sudden realize that you could have something else, they kind of fall in love with it in a weird way. Does that make any I sense? I do think that's I do think that's part of it. British expats, yes, tend to live in south of France or Spain or Australia mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. the United States. And and if you look at where I initially visited, it was Florida, Arizona, and Southern California. Right. That's what I was thinking of when you were going to those places. Like, oh, you're, but, ju you're just a sun junkie. And now, well, and now you live in Florida. 
I do live in Florida, and I think that is a part of it. And when I first visited New York, I was 18, and I thought, this isn't quite right. <laughs> I'm not anti-New York, I'll be clear about that, but it doesn't have the same weather, and also it feels much more like England in that the streets are narrow and it's, mm. it's busy and so on. But it is more than just that. There, There is that sense of belonging you just described was something that I felt right from the beginning. And it's almost religious in nature. It's, it was almost a conversion experience. I wrote about this in a cover story a few years ago for the magazine that I, I don't know how to explain this without accepting that it is irrational. But if you showed me a photograph of a canyon or a mountain and told me that mountain is in the United States, I will feel more affinity for it and more um, love for it than if you told me it was anywhere else, even places that I like or think are beautiful or enjoy visiting. And that's always been the case. There's something about the refrains on Anetta James or Patsy Cline record that have a, a resonance that I cannot explain other than that they are American. And I understand people have different experiences. Um, and so I'm, of course, in no way comparing myself to the people who left uh, other countries for Ellis Island. I, I, I also didn't come from a dangerous place, so I wasn't escaping anywhere. But right from uh, the beginning, in what was a very happy childhood, I looked at the photographs of people going to America, moving to America, and thought, that's me. And I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, so I always liked... Um my friend, my, he died a few years ago. Peter Schram, he had the he actually heard this from his dad. You know, he, he grew up and he was born in Hungary. His dad was literally um, on his essentially on his way to a firing squad, and the factory where he was got bombed. And anyway, his dad was like, "All right, that's it. We're moving to America." And he asked his dad, "Why America?" And he says, his dad says, because we were born in we were born Americans, just in the wrong place." And um, I, uh, yeah, it, it's funny how many immigrant people I know. I mean, uh, Ilya Shapiro, who's been on here a couple of times, he has almost the exact same sort of sentiment. He's just, he's just like felt like they screwed up something at the hospital and they took the baby and brought him to you know the wrong country. And and the interesting thing about that with Ilya and also I think with myself is that it would be much more logically understandable in somebody who grew up in Rwanda, right, or somebody who had been a political exile or somebody uh, who was on the outskirts of their society. But I in no way want to suggest that I, I was hard done by as a child. I wasn't. Uh, I have a fabulous family. Uh, I didn't grow up poor. My parents did, but but it didn't affect me. Uh, I had a nice education. Uh, you know, Elias from Canada. <laughs> I'm from Britain. These are very nice, very stable places. And yet... Uh, America was just preeminent in my ambition. So when was the first time someone put a gun in your hand? Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> if you mean if you mean gun, it depends what you mean. I mean, England actually had shooting sports when I was growing up. Uh, I mean, I probably when I was six, I was handed an air rifle and told to practice with it at summer camp. On the Irish? Uh, and then... 
<laughs> exactly. Um, but you know, the problem with that is it doesn't do much damage to them. Um, but no, that that was something that I, I wasn't entirely new to. And and when I was at school, we had a cadet force, and I was in the air force part, and they gave us. I suppose you would call them assault weapons if you're going to use that made-up term. They were semi-automatic rifles with with 556 NATO rounds in them at 16. Um, I mean, the first time somebody put a, a gun in my hand that that wasn't either extremely low-powered or owned by the military and I was only allowed to use under supervision was when I was visiting Virginia in, I don't know, 2005. Uh, and then they let me shoot their their handguns. Um, but, you know, I, Jonah, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I used to be really anti-gun and really critical of the Second Amendment. It was it was only – it was really an intellectual change, that one, not a, not a visceral change. Yeah, but, but the thing is you – so, I mean, for listeners who don't know, Charlie is a um, – gun nut is too pejorative because, uh, again, Charlie's attachment to guns is very uh, intellectual and he knows more about Second Amendment history than – one of th- maybe almost anybody I know. I mean, there are a couple people who I know of by reputation, but certainly anybody I'm friends with, um, you're up there, and um, you clearly like them as artifacts as well, right? I mean, you just you think they're cool. I hear you when you talk about them. I remember we, sure. we saw each other in Alaska gun range once because you know it's weird coincidences sometimes, and um, <laughs> uh, you were like rhapsodizing about how much fun it is to shoot a Tommy gun. Yeah, I mean, I think that that that's a couple of things. Firstly, I do enjoy shooting them now, and I wouldn't have particularly anticipated that when I was younger. But I do enjoy shooting them, um, and not to overintellectualize it. But one of the reasons I love Tommy guns so much is they're historically fascinating. Yeah, and I am—I don't mean a professional historian, but I am a historian. That's what I uh, did at university, and it's what really got me into a lot of American politics and. The history of the Tommy gun uh, is not only the history of gangsterism in America and the pre-New Deal crime wave, but but it also interacts with the history of the First and Second World Wars. So, and and they're beautifully made. They're, they're mostly wood. They're pretty heavy, but the caliber is very low. It's a forty-five rather than a rifle round, and so um, you have this odd machine. And as you said earlier, I, I am a bit of a tinkerer. You know, I, I like building things, and so this this. This particular gun just fascinates me. Are you going to get a 3D printer and make your own guns? I don't think I am going to do that, but I do think that that is is a a fascinating example of technology determining politics. Because you know, if you go back to to the late 1990s, Chuck Grassley used to rail on the Senate floor uh, about the proliferation of pornography on the internet. And the assumption underneath his remarks was always that the federal government could stop it, could do something about it. And I don't know at the time whether he was regarded as being completely naive or whether there was a a caucus that agreed with him. But now his words look hilarious, um, especially given what we know about technology and and how, how it's exploded. And I think the same thing is going to be true in 30 years of firearms. So do you think it's going to be a good thing if people can be able to – I mean we can come back to pornography in a second because I, I agree that the government couldn't get rid of it, but it could make it more difficult to find. And I'm not necessarily sure that would be a terrible thing. But but on on the gun part, if if let's just say 3D printing becomes you know ubiquitous and affordable, 
um, or ubiquitous because it's affordable, do you think it would be a net good or bad if people could print their own guns? I think in America it won't make too much difference. I think where it's going to be really interesting to watch is in Japan and Britain, in places that have strict gun control. In a country with almost 400 million guns in private hands, I don't think it's going to make much difference at all. So it's interesting about this technology thing. So this is one of my ongoing bugaboos is that, uh, and I think I've brought it up on here a few times, you know, there's this great exchange between William F. Buckley and Whitaker Chambers where Chambers is telling Buckley he can't call himself a conservative. He can only call himself a man of the right. And part of his argument for why is he, he crafts this, he calls it the, the Beaconsfield position after Disraeli was the Earl of Beaconsfield. And he says that basically the problem is, is that the, the means of production ultimately, he couldn't, you know, chambers like Burnham and a lot of these guys couldn't shed all of the Marxism that they imbibed. They could just, you know, they still sort of thought in those categories, even though they sort of rejected the, the ends of those things. And and his argument was is that, you know, at the end of the day, politics is going to be moved by at least largely by, by, by machinery, right? And this is like one of the things as conservatives, we tend to really love to argue about ideas. But and so we, we talk about like the dissolution of the, man, the family and about, you know, cultural licentiousness and all these things as sort of as if they're the, the symptoms of some disease that escaped you know, a, a East German, you know, English department, uh, you know, literature department or something, you know, it's like if only the cultural Marxists hadn't existed, some of these ideas wouldn't be here. If only Nietzsche hadn't existed, we would still all believe in God. And the problem with that is like, if you look at the actual social history, you know, the number of out of wedlock births in the United States exploded with the invention and the, the distribution of automobiles. They were basically like rolling brothels. Because for the first time, you could escape the censorious eyes of your community and your family, and teenagers went off and, and got jiggy. And the problem is, is that you, it's similar with the, you know, the, the birth control pill. We want to talk about how all of these things in our culture are the product of ideas when a lot of them are, in fact, driven by material changes. And um, I think it's Carl Hess who says, you know, society has changed. I'm completely butchering this, but it's like something like society has changed more because of the invention of hand tools than any ideas in the Bible. And I reject that, but I think there's a core point in there that, that you know, it's very easy to argue with Nietzsche. It's very hard to argue with the Buick. And so I agree with you. It'll be very interesting when the technology gets to the point where these laws are kind of meaningless and whether or not the politics that come from that are going to be more oppressive or more sort of laissez-faire. And I don't think that there's any, I don't think there's any teleology that says it has to go one way or the other. I don't think there is any teleology, no. I do think that when in recent history Americans have been faced with either accepting the proliferation of a particular good or, or ill or agreeing to whatever authoritarian measures would be necessary to stop it, they've chosen to allow the proliferation. I suppose the one counter argument would be the drug war, but we don't really fight it as a war. It's a misnomer. We're half-hearted about it. Now, that doesn't mean people don't have their lives ruined by government interaction, 
but it, it, it does mean that there it doesn't seem to me in America to be sufficient enthusiasm for the level of interference you would need in order to actually stamp out cars or drugs or contraception or pornography or whatever. And I can't see, especially on the back of a gun culture, that that's going to be especially different when anyone can print a gun at home because well, it's also worth saying that that's that ultimately is going to be a First Amendment question as much as anything else. And indeed, the the litigation that we're seeing and the jurisprudence that we're seeing around the idea of 3D printed firearms is as much rooted in the First Amendment as it is in the Second. Uh, in that, the question is, what sort of communications can the government ban? Um, and how is not, 3D not, printing a communication? Well, because the the blueprints for it, oh, the, the digital files that tell the 3D printer what to do have to be transmitted. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the the recent case with Defense Distributed, they won. The, the Department of Justice relented because they were nervous that they were going to be done on First Amendment grounds, not Second Amendment grounds. And, and it also creates odd political coalitions, this one, because it's almost certainly the case that progressives will dislike the idea of uh, a technical advance that renders gun control even less um, likely. But so many of the instincts of groups such as the ACLU are on the side of the free flow of information uh, in every other aspect other than guns. And um, I don't think you're going to be able to keep together a progressive block that sides against the crypto anarchists, they're called, that have developed this uh, in the way that you can against, say, the NRA or Smith & Wesson. Well, since you're talking about interesting coalitions, where do you think the gun manufacturers are going to come down on this question? I think it's entirely possible that they will try to protect themselves and use the government to do it. Uh, I don't think they'll succeed. In, in doing that. What, one thing they might start to do is to produce the raw materials that are used by 3D printers in order to create weapons. And we already see this. Uh, you can buy at the moment a partially completed lower, the lower receiver being the part of uh, an AR-15 rifle that is deemed to be the gun. You can buy all the other parts of a, an AR-15 in the United States through the mail without a background check. But the the part that is the gun, is the heart of the machine. Uh, You can buy partially completed versions of that, which can then be milled by by, by tools that you can purchase yourself. Now, there are legal questions because you're not allowed to do that and then sell it or transfer it or even hand it to somebody else unless you put a serial number on it and register it. Whether people actually do that, I don't know. But... um, this is growing. It's becoming more and more popular. It's going to lead to the rise of what is, has been termed the ghost gun. And I think once, it's, once we're at the point at which 3D printing is uh, much uh, cheaper and more commonly uh, entertained, then the smart move for gun manufacturers would be to get on board and help produce the parts you need and maybe the machines you need uh, rather than to fight it. But of course, we all know what will happen if the government gets involved. The lobbying will be intense and possibly protectionist. Yeah, I, I can see it going a couple different ways. I mean, I, I think the Japanese model would be kind of interesting, you know, because they're one of the few countries that actually 
you know, had guns, and then it was so destabilizing the samurai culture that they banned them, right? Sort of like in Europe when they, when the Lateran Council in the 1500s got rid of crossbows because they were considered an assassin's weapon and because they were politically destabilizing because you could kill people from far away. But there's another way. Look, I remember talking to a, I did a piece for NR years ago about Vegas, and I was asking him about whether or not they disliked the then sort of flood of new casinos opening up around the country. And this pit boss guy or this executive guy explained to me that it's much more like golf courses, that once you get into gambling, you want to go play in the best golf course in the world, right? You want to go play, I don't know what, what that would be, Turnberry, the Masters, wherever those, you know, Augusta. And so you get people hooked on the product and then the top brands actually have an advantage because it's expanding their market. And I could see that depending on how good the 3D printed guns are, that this would be an opportunity to sort of get people even more into gun culture. And then they would want even more specialized, expensive, sort of the Gucci of guns, whatever that would be, or the Tiffany of guns. You could see it kind of going different ways, but I don't know. I just don't know how we got on this. I just felt like I thought it was interesting. But let's switch to the drug war real quick since you brought it up. Now, you were so – years ago, I asked Rich because, you know, I've always been an outlier at the magazine about the drug war stuff. The magazine's been against it since, what, 94, 93, something like that? And I once asked Rich Lowry, our fearless leader, whether or not the magazine would be against the drug war if it worked in the sense that what if prohibition worked about drugs, would we be in favor of it or is this like – or is prohibition analogous to censorship, where even if it works, it's wrong, right? You're on the side of even if it could work, it would be wrong, right? Yeah. Yes, I am, yes. So you're for legalizing heroin, meth, PCP, all of that stuff. I am, although where I am more conservative than many of the people who take that view is that I want to do this slowly. I don't want some overnight change that is forced from above and radically alters the status quo. I, I think, so, firstly, there are... Go on. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the slowly argument. I, I would, I've always been for decriminalization and, and ultimate legalization of weed, but I really wanted that to go a lot slower, too. I thought Colorado did it. Give them 10 years. No one else can do it. Let's see how it goes. Um, instead, it's everybody into the pool. But I also think weed is very different than those other drugs. So I understand completely the argument for gradualism, as you know, as, as, as I am probably more sympathetic to, to Burke than you are in many of these kinds of things. But at the same time, so if we if we eased into it, you'd be fine with Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline and all those companies advertising really the best heroin on like TV commercials during football games and baseball games and that kind of stuff the way they do with Viagra now. I would be fine with that. I should be very clear. I don't like drugs or take them myself. I understand. But yes, I would be fine with that. Okay. We don't need to get deeply into the weeds with this, but I, I do think that's wrong for a few reasons. Um, and I'll let you respond to my main one, which is that almost all other arguments about lifting prohibition are that, that they are based upon, and certainly in the libertarian construct, they're based on the assumption that all human beings are rational actors and they're free to make their own choices and all the rest. The problem with things like heroin is that you can make an initial 
you're no matter how you slice it, you're going to have some statistically significant number of people who are no longer rational actors once they try it a couple times. And they are essentially locked into a lifetime of addiction that they very much rationally want to get out of, but for all sorts of biochemical reasons can't. And so I just think the paradigm of, you know, everyone's free to choose, live your own life and all the rest, um, doesn't really work too well with with some heavily addictive drugs. Weed, I think, is addictive psychologically for some people, but it's not really a it's not an opiate, right? And but heroin is, and and some of these other drugs are, and some of these drugs are going to get much much better. And the the argument that there is no case for paternalism in this, at the very least, at the margins, to reduce the number of people who get addicted, I just I. I I can't buy. What's your response to that? Well, I think that's the best argument, uh, and I and I think that uh, this this is the the argument that perhaps isn't made enough on the prohibitionist side when it when it comes to heroin. Uh, is broadly the argument that Theodore Dalrymple makes as well that uh, essentially it's the same argument as that you can't vote to make yourself a slave that the government has to outlaw that right you can't sell yourself into indentured servitude it's a strong argument i just think that all politics is trade off and i don't see it being the role of government to protect me from myself uh, even if i'm going to hurt myself and why i think it differs from the slavery argument uh, is that there's no one else involved at least not uh, against my will. It, it, it's a difficult uh, distinction, I think, to draw. But when somebody is sold into slavery, uh, that implicates their master. Uh, and I don't think it does so with heroin in, in the same way. Um, I can see a role for government in passing laws that are designed to prevent one person from hurting another. And so if there is overwhelming evidence that a particular substance leads you to become violent, then I can see a much stronger case for government to get involved. The, the trouble with that is that we would need to rework our entire culture. Uh, we'd need to, almost certainly, we'd need to ban alcohol as well. Now, you will say that's, that's not a very good argument because just because we have alcohol and just because it's prevalent, just because we're used to it and just because we couldn't get rid of it doesn't and because mean I like we should rein. <laughs> well, right, I do too. I, I, I can see should... that I, there's some hypocrisy in my point about the alcohol thing. I have defenses of it, but I, I, I think at the same time that there is some, well, it's, there's know, some merit to the, the countercharge. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, one, one, of the, one of the good arguments um, in favor of, of alcohol as opposed to other drugs is that while it is, of course, true – that you can drink as much alcohol as you like and that in a lot of circumstances, no one will stop you from doing that. It's not as if bartenders say one and only. But one of the best arguments is that it is possible to have a social drink, to go out and have one beer with somebody. But you don't really sort of have one heroin hit, right? Mm -hmm. And even with marijuana, it's rare that you say, well, I'll just have a little bit socially. Um, it, you can do that, but it, it's rare. So I do accept that. Um, I just don't conceive of the government as being there to prevent me from making bad decisions that affect me alone. I accept that because people have different conceptions of what me alone means, then we will 
we will differ on this. But you then you get into this sort of Wickard Filburn conversation, right? Where uh, I mean, if I suddenly become a heroin addict and that's bad for my children, which it probably would be, does the government have the right to step in? And some people will say yes, and it's reasonable. And I would say in this case, no. Right. So, um, I mean, we could do this more, but I, I want to move on. But I think a good way to do this is uh, – so I've been on and you've probably been on and you were the author of a book called Conservatarian, The Conservatarian Manifesto and which is I – don't, I don't mean this in an invidious or pejorative way but is sort of a modern updating of a very old argument on the right about fusionism, about the trade-offs or right. the, the – where one – where conservatism is right and where libertarianism is right and where the Venn diagrams meet. We can get to that. But I've been on – I don't know. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate. Let's just say 8,000 panels <laughs> over the last 20, 25 years about conservatives and libertarians and where is the synthesis, where is fusionism, where – blah, 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 blah. And almost at every single one, some propeller head nerdy intern or 20-something uh, egghead kid will say, aren't all these arguments really just sort of missing the point that – if we lived in the federalist system that our founding fathers envisioned and we pushed these these issues down to the most local level possible, all of these arguments would sort of evaporate between you guys because the real problem is that the federal government is policing these things, which should be policed at a much at much closer to the ground. And on most issues, the Jonah Goldbergs and the Charles Murrays and, you know, the David Boses more or less say, yeah, and then we go back to fighting because we have to fight. So let me put it this way: Would it be, would you be fine with it? Because I know you are a Constitution guy. Would you be fine if we pushed these questions down to the local level and said that in Birmingham they could ban heroin, but in Boston it can be legal? Not only would I be fine with it, but I think that's the only legal and constitutional way of addressing the question. My objection is to the federal government being involved. Now, I would, of course, have my own view within my community. Right. So I would stand up in Florida and say, I think we should legalize this, that or the other. But I would never wish to impose upon voters in you know, Alabama or Georgia. And I certainly would not want the federal government to get involved in the question. So you think that the Constitution does not actually have within it an inherent right to do whatever you want with your body and take whatever drugs that you want to take? I don't think it's justiciable, certainly. I think two things. Firstly, this is a state question and the federal government has no power, as the Constitution is presently written, to superintend the issue. And secondly, that I cannot go to a judge and legitimately ask him to intervene if my state bans heroin. I, I don't see that anywhere in the Constitution. I think the Constitution is silent on the question. As a matter of political philosophy... I think that the government has no right to exercise that power over me. Any, As a any of constitutional reality. Any government. Does. Correct. Yeah. But, but, but I don't think that I can sue for redress of grievances because I don't see where within the federal constitution the – well, either the federal government is, is empowered to pronounce on the question either way or – uh, I am given an enumerated right to take heroin. Neither is in there. Okay, so let's let's pop across the. I mean, we could do this for a while, but I, I'm getting grief from people for being too nerdy on this podcast. So let's. Uh, well, th this won't solve that problem. But 
Can you sort of explain where we are to the extent you know or understand it? I just this is a just a really glib bigotry on my part. I assume because you hail from there, you have a better grasp of what the hell's going on with the Brexit stuff than I do. Were you for Brexit? Yes, very much so. You still for Brexit? Yes. Are we going to get? Brexit? But I, I should say, I should say up front, I was for Brexit in a way that not a huge number of people I know were, or at least if they were, they didn't put it like this. I was for Brexit on Lockean grounds. I was for Brexit because I believe that legislatures can make laws and not other legislatures. I was for Brexit for the same reason the socialist Tony Benn was for Brexit, uh, namely that powers are loaned to parliamentarians by the people and cannot be given away. And I am just not remotely convinced by the counter argument, which is, well, if those people have been entrusted with public power, then and they can subsequently take it back at will, then there's no harm uh, in delegation. I, I see this in some ways as being the same debate that we have in America of the administrative state, that legislatures are given the power to make law, they are not given the power to make other legislatures. And, and, th and that is what happened with the EU. What started off as a trade idea, a sort of European NAFTA, which I would have been entirely in favor of, was transmuted into a, a pan-European political project that the British Parliament was incompatible with. Are we going to get Brexit? In some form we are, yes, because the political imperatives around it guarantee it. The Tory party will be in serious trouble if it doesn't deliver something. Uh, there's enough of a pro-Brexit contingent within the voting base of the Labour Party to make Labour running against Brexit suicidal. There is still a large block of UKIP voters who will happily jump up and down during a general election and siphon off votes from uh, anyone who steps out of line. Um, but ultimately, I think the problem we have here is that there is a real divide in Britain between the people on this question and those they've elected. Uh, and there's also something of a structural problem in that Parliament created the instrument by which Brexit was ordered, um, but is not constitutionally bound to obey it. It wasn't as if this was some, you know, uh, tablet brought down from Mount Olympus that Parliament had to had to uh, implement. The, the the fact is Parliament can quite easily renege on the deal because it was Parliament that gave the people the right to vote on it. And I think too many people in Parliament know that. And there's just so many people in Britain in positions of power who say very openly, we should ignore it. It's been proven to be a bad idea. We'll, we'll renege on it. We'll have a second referendum, which is their way of saying we won't do it. So you're going to find some sort of muddling through where you do get a Brexit, but there's an awful lot of uh, maintenance of, of what, what the EU and British membership of it involved. Would the Brits be better off if you got... You know, I, I keep saying you guys. I know you're an American, but, you know... It's the, just deal with it. Um, okay. <laughs> um, if 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 the Brit would the Brits be better off if they had a written constitution? Well, I think yes, but I am somebody who is greatly admiring that um, of the fact that America is still an incubator of classical liberalism and who attributes that largely successful incubation to the written constitution. I think, but both because judicial review has helped keep. Uh, the, the borders intact and also because as James Madison 
proposed, once you write down these ideas, then they gain a foothold in the public imagination. You can point to them. You can appeal to them. Even if you can't take your government to court, you can still say, hey, don't do that. It says here in this Lockean contract we have, you're not allowed to to do that to me or to exercise that power. And I think the same thing would have happened in uh, Britain. But of course, that doesn't account for cultural differences that are real. Um, I, you know, I, Canada is a different place than America. And it, Dan Foster used to say that Canada is in some ways America's control experiment. What happens if you don't have a constitution? What happens if you don't have a founding in quite the same way? But that doesn't acknowledge that so many of the people who were flatly against the the revolution in the first place went to Canada. Right. And I think there is a particular character here that is informed by the fact that so many people and their ancestors came from somewhere else deliberately that you don't have in Britain. But yes, I do think we'd be better off with it um, because the the purpose of the written constitution in America, above all else, is to avoid mob rule and is to avoid these huge sort of tornadoes of change. And it's mostly worked, not always, but it's mostly worked. But Britain has gone through some periods of real upheaval that I do regret. Uh, the, the, the biggest one, I think, was in 1945 after the Second World War. And liberalism, in, in the old sense of that word, collapsed quite quickly and hasn't been restored. So, yeah, on balance, yeah, I, I think it would be good. So it's funny because that I, – I, I love Dan, but I, I think that's – I think you're closer to the right way to think about it. You know, There's a point that Marty, Seymour Martin Lipset used to make all the time about how one of the most interesting natural experiments in the history of political science – was the difference between the United States and Canada, and not because Canada didn't have a written constitution, but because Canada was populated, same genetic stock, same culture, right? Same people, basically, but they self-sorted between, so the royalists and loyalists either moved there or stayed there, and the people who wanted to sort of try this new exciting thing and have their heads and their hearts wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice went to the United went to the thirteen colonies. And so you have it's much more it's a much more interesting cultural divide. I I, I I bet you if you physically took the the populations and switched them around, Canada would look a lot more like America and America would look a lot more like Canada, not because the quote unquote Canadians grew up under our constitution, but because the 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 human capital that we would put you know in Canada would still be the Americans. They would still be the ones who saw the world, you know, where, you know, was it De Tocqueville says about, you know, the American is the Englishman left alone. I think that is a deter determining thing. And, you know, so that's sort of like my, um, it's a big part of the thesis of my book, which is that one of the things that we get our liberty from and our love for liberty and everything else, or what I call the miracle, is that the English were just weird, Right. I mean, they're, they're just outliers in a very Whiggish way from normal from the rest of Europe and how they developed about how you didn't have a, you didn't have standing armies. So therefore, you didn't need to have an absolute king. You, um, you know, the, the 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 way common law was allowed to survive there in ways it wasn't in, on the continent. And and then America sort of was a centrifuge for that. And then the great thing that we did was write that stuff down. And locked it in, and they made it very difficult to sort of change it. And so, it's one of the things I like about the Constitution is it's it's as much a bulwark against changing the culture as it is about changing the law in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, and the people who wrote it were nuts in some ways. Yeah. And they were, as you say, they were radical. And I think we forget how radical they were. I th- also, for what it's worth, just to uh, echo our previous conversation, I think this is one reason that so many people have trouble imagining that the Second Amendment says uh, means what it says because they can't imagine being being radical in that way. Right. Um, but if you go back to the, the sort of New England militias during the Revolutionary War, they weren't always effective for this reason. But they were levelers. Yeah. I mean, they, they wanted to elect their militia captains. They often decided just to bugger off in the middle of a battle and go back to Connecticut. Um, they had some views of hierarchy in society. Now, this, 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 it wasn't uniform because this weren't shared down in Virginia. But they had some views about hierarchy in society that even today – I think people struggle with because we do as human beings like to look for for patterns. And I've often thought just how admirable it was that they fought the war in the way that they did because if you read the Declaration of Independence, it's small ball compared to what happened in, say, the the 20th century. And I've I've recently, every July 4th, um, I've I've thought about this when reading rereading the Declaration, that if you – went to somebody in the gulag or if you went to somebody in the uh, holocaust concentration camp um, or, or in cambodia and you said to them let me tell you about this terrible stuff that happened to these colonists in the 18th century in the united states and then you read them the, the list of grievances they'd laugh in your face right now i think some people look at that and say well that demonstrates that that the whole thing was a bit silly. But I think the opposite. I think it demonstrates just how admirable they were to fight over abstract principle. I mean, if you can if you can get as upset as the American colonists did over the Declaratory Acts and <laughs> over the Stamp Acts and over, you know, the nature of representation in, in a, a, a colony, um, then you're probably well set to avoid Nazi Germany. But, you know, I, I, I think we sometimes forget that because we like to talk about the British as tyrants and the movies we make, that, that stupid Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot, where they import Nazi war crimes and attribute them to the British. The British never did that. You know, th- that tells me we have to sort of sex it up a bit. Right. Uh, but there's no need to. It's, it's actually more admirable that these nuts, these liberty freaks were quite happy to turn the world upside down over abstract principle. Um, no, I agree with that entirely. I mean, this is I mean, this is a recurring theme here, which is that that what people don't understand about American exceptionalism doesn't mean that it doesn't necessarily imply that we're. I mean, first of all, the term itself was basically coined by Stalin, <laughs> but the idea of American exceptionalism was never supposed to imply that we're better than the rest of the world. It was that it's a double-edged sword. It comes with all sorts of downsides and upsides. Basically, it just means we're exceptional because we're just different than other people. We're weird. And I think that's partly because we took a lot of the weirdness of English culture and we put it on steroids. And I like that and I want to celebrate that and not sort of be embarrassed by it. Yeah, well, whenever anyone says to me, you know, we're the only country in the world in which, in almost every circumstance, I think, good. Right. And and often they're wrong, <laughs> too. And the thing I hate about that argument is when people say – well, you know, that's not the way they do it in France. And then I can point to – or in Australia or wherever. And then I can point to like five policies that the French have that I might be sympathetic to that if I propose them, you know, they 
the response would be, well, that would be outrageous. Well, wait a second. <laughs> you know, you can't point to these other societies yeah. that they do it better. But then I point to something that they, you know, like I don't like the what, what the French call it, laissez-faire. But, you know, the right. stuff about no headscarves in schools and no crosses or whatever. Um, I think that's terrible. But you can't go on telling me about how enlightened the French are because of how they pay for health care or something. And then I say, OK, well, you know, they also ban Muslims from wearing headscarves in public schools and and then say, well, that's outrageous. You know, you, ha- you can't you can't cherry pick this stuff if you're going to say that other countries are more enlightened. Usually what. When people say, you know, in other countries they do it this way, what they really mean is in some parallel dimension where I get to design American policies, you know. It's like Marty Lipset always say, you can never understand – you can't understand any country if you only understand one country. And so often it's really just making a – you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a bogus form of utopian argument uh, masquerading as sophistication. Yeah, and it and it often comes from people who haven't left the country. I have to say, right? No, that's exactly right. Or you know, <laughs> I remember, I remember Paul Krugman wrote a column in the '90s uh, where he was like saying how he was walking around Paris and for some conference, and the thought that kept occurring to him was, does this really, does this really look like a country whose economic model isn't thriving? <laughs> and it's like, well, you know. If all you're doing is walking around, you know, St. Germain in Paris as you go from your hotel, you're not really looking at the economy of France. You're just looking at the places you go to. And there's a lot of that among sort of liberal elites is that they go they, – they, they're part of the sort of same globalist elite here and they visit their globalist elite friends abroad and they think, oh, the French are just so much more sophisticated. But it's – really it's the same demographic just either in New York or in London or in Paris. Yeah, and it works the other way around, of course. French people love New York. Right, right. The thing that horrifies me is that when so many tourists come to America and they've been to Times Square or to Vegas and they think they've seen America, you know? Um, I mean, I like New York and I like I like Vegas, but uh, it's not – you're not seeing America per se. You're just seeing, you know, one small facet of the disco ball. All right, let's just quickly turn to um, – domestic stuff. Uh, it wouldn't be the remnant if we didn't talk about this a little bit. Uh, we recently talked about this thing. There seems to be this this push out there that, um, you know, I was asked a couple uh, last week, I think it was, by Adam Baldwin. And I think it was sincere, and I like Adam Baldwin. And um, But he was like, what does Trump have to do to make you support him? And we went round and round on this, and I kept trying to say, I think we just have a fundamental terminological problem here. Because if I – Trump's doing lots of things I like, and I say that I like them. I like Kavanaugh. I like, you know, uh, I like trying to get NATO to spend more money. That's all great. But I don't like the way he's doing it. And – but there's this – there seems to be implicit in this thing that that if he gives you enough things transactionally, some switch should be flipped. And all of a sudden, you shouldn't have a problem with anything that he does or you shouldn't complain about it. Do you see what I'm t- getting at? I do. I'm utterly mystified by it. I, I could see why it made sense when the question was filtered through a choice. There was a choice in the primary. Who are you going to vote for? Who are you going to back? Who do you like? And there was a choice in the presidential election. It wasn't a binary choice. I find that it's, it's strange that both sides seem to think that their team has a, 
uh, a reserve set on your vote. But it was a choice. You could choose to vote for Hillary. You could choose to vote for Trump. You could choose to vote for none of them. You could choose to vote for Jill Stein, et cetera, et cetera. That was a choice. But now he is the president. That's a fact. It, it, it's not an opinion. Um, and also whatever your opinion on it isn't going to change it. He is the president. And yet there is this odd call all the time. Are you going to support him? Do you support him? That is divorced from any sort of choice or, or shibboleth. And I never know what it means to support him. I like Kavanaugh and I like most of his judges, and I like Neil Gorsuch. I'm glad that he pulled out of Paris. I'm glad that he um, rescinded the Iran deal. I, I was agnostic on the substance of the Iran deal. I just thought that it was effectively a treaty and should have gone through Congress. Um, I don't like an awful lot of the rest of the stuff that he's done, and I thought his performance in Helsinki was absolutely reprehensible. So when people say, well, do you support him? Will you support him now? Do you think you are wrong? It, it, it reminds me of the sort of odd medieval view of one's relationship to somebody in power. Essentially, are they asking, will you pledge fealty to him? Right. Will you pledge your life? And I'm not quite sure what that means in practice. I mean, certainly I'm not going to die for him. Um, but also I'm not going to lie for him. And I'm not going to lie against him. Right. If, if being opposed to Trump means I have to pretend that I think he's wrong when I think he's right, I'm not doing it. And if supporting Trump means I have to pretend that I think he's right when I think he's wrong, I'm not doing it either. And I don't understand why people are asking me the question. What I do think, uh, other than that it's corrupting the right in many ways, is that it, it it's also a question that is corrupting our politics because it is it – is, uh, it's an inquiry that you get from progressives too, especially progressives who believe that, that Trump is Hitler. We already have a problem in this country with presidential and executive power. Congress is supposed to be the center of our system and it is not at the moment. Instead, the president is. And Congress tends to react to what the president does. It tends to see its role as being led by what the president does rather than the other way around. And, and the, the best way that you could ever find to make that worse is to plot all of your pundits and politicians on a graph uh, as to where they sit in relation to the president, which is what we seem to be doing. Uh, and I've noticed that pundits haven't, haven't, just, haven't just been expected to answer the question of whether they support or oppose him now, but they, they talk openly online about where they are in relation to him. Well, I took two steps towards him, but then he did this and I took one step back. Towards what? <laughs> Why couldn't you dislike him on Monday because he was shockingly um, evil in Helsinki and then like what he did on Wednesday when he issued an executive order? I, 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 don't, I just – I don't understand the, 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 the tribalism. Yeah. To me, it's, it's – and I keep going back to this because I read a bunch about – and I, I know it was like bringing Coles to Newcastle. I know you know this stuff better than I do. But the fight – you know, the fights with the Glorious Revolution – where the very idea of having a Catholic on the throne was had much less to do – I mean obviously it had a lot to do with theology and it had a lot to do with actual policy stuff and relationships to, to Spain and all – I get all that. But at the bottom, it's that – and this has been building for a long time. I mean Ramesh would argued about this with, with W in his first term is that presidents have become avatars of the culture war. And through that is this medieval mindset seeps in where 
you have to sort of – you have to genuflect, right? And so the, this idea of having a Catholic on the throne felt like it upended your entire worldview about what your country was supposed to stand for and vice versa, right? And so you, it was really a conflict of visions. And the actual individual policies of William or whoever mattered so much less than this idea of where is your heart? Are you on this side or are you on that side? And that's all that really mattered. And you've, you know, like, and, and so it's, it's now creeping into the stuff. You know, I had this exchange with Michael Doran where he's basically arguing, and Molly Hemingway is making this argument in some ways as well, that pundits have to reflect the electorate, as Doran put it, right? And that that's our obligation. And it goes back to uh, the first place I remember seeing this argument emerge was between Guy Benson and Mike Gallagher, the radio host. And I like both of them. But Gallagher was saying that basically that Guy, by by criticizing or pointing out flaws in Trump's arguments, was basically calling balls and strikes, that by calling balls and strikes, Guy was betraying his audience or had a credibility problem. And they got into this really interesting argument where Mike basically said that his job wasn't to tell the truth as he saw it. His job was to reflect the views of his listeners. And Guy said, no, what I, it's sort of like, you know, uh, Burke's letters to the, was it the letters of the editors of Bristol, where he says, I owe you my judgment, not, you know, my blind fealty to whatever you want. Um, there is this weird notion out there now that because there is this populist faith in, you know, that you have to support Trump, you know, in his, whatever he does, because he's our guy, that that you're not really supposed to actually tell the truth as you see it anymore. You were supposed to be a fighting priest for your denomination. And I just find it shocking that so many people see it this way. And It also imbues us with a weird magic whereby we're irrelevant because we've completely divorced ourselves from our audience, but we're also doing it for the cash. Right. And also, I, I, I like there's this implicit thing that you hear all the time about, you know, if you support him because it's not helpful, why don't you support him? You know, this picking it doesn't help him. It's like, what? I mean, sincerely, I asked this, you know, because Rich recently sent me an email from a guy saying, you know, you know, I don't, it was very sincere and nice and I'm not criticizing the guy. But the argument of it was you're not helping the cause by by criticizing Trump so much. And I I, I get that. But. First, I don't necessarily understand how that's sort of my job description. But secondly, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this, this idea of let's say tomorrow I went full Seb Gorka and said that, you know, Comrade Trump will deliver the greatest wheat harvests we've ever seen. What objectively about Trump's behavior would change? What objectively about the political climate would change? What, what tangible benefits would it yield in the actual real world? Because it seems to me that what, what people really want me to do is stop reminding them that, that there are problems here, right? They, just, they, they, want, they, they want everybody to get in the pool. And do, do, do you remember when Obamacare was, was undergoing its initial issues and there weren't enough people signing up? There was this odd line that you would hear on the left complaining that conservatives were rooting against it. Right, And that was why it was failing, as if we all had magical powers that we could think, I hate Obamacare, I hate Obamacare. And then, you know, <laughs> someone in Iowa would say, ah, I've just realized I shall not sign up for this thing. That's, that's sort of what conservatives who like Trump are doing with you. Yeah. 
I just find it strange. I mean, it just, it, it's just—it's—it's a—you it's a, know—I'm sort of obsessed with seeing these things that existed prior to the Enlightenment manifesting themselves in new forms, and I just see it as, as a form of that. Is this medieval thing that you're talking about? Anyway, I know you've got to go, so I'm going to just do the closing question, which is—and we've talked about this in real life before. How uh, we first started talking about with the Kevin Williams and stuff, how it used to be there was a lot more tolerance for people to have weird ideas and still be fully productive members of society. And if you go through history and you look at some of the most important scientists, you know, best example is Isaac Newton, who basically was a scientist on the side and really wanted to be a sorcerer. Um, and he wanted to re discover alchemy, which he thought was this lost art and all these kinds of things. And Edison and Marconi wanted to create radios to talk to the ghosts and all of these weird things. So I've gone on about this a bunch of times on the, on the show about all my weird ideas that are outside, way outside any kind of Overton window. What are some truly strange positions that you have that you would be willing to defend over beers but are reluctant to on, say, a podcast like mine? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I don't think this is truly weird, but I, I do increasingly lament the invention of the Internet, even though it's given me my job. Um, I think that if you look back at how life was before everyone had smartphones, you could genuinely find somewhere new without knowing all about it mm -hmm. before you'd been there. Um, you know, I mean, if I go on holiday now, I will know what the hotel looks like, what the lobby looks like, what the room looks like, uh, what facilities they have. I'll know what restaurants are there. I'll know what's on the menu even. I may have even read reviews by people who'd been there. I will never see anywhere for the first time in the way people saw Venice for the first time or people saw you know, Machu Picchu for the wrong for, for, for the first time. That's an interesting. And, I mean, of all the complaints about the internet, that's an that's an interesting new one. I mean, it's it's because there are lots of problems with the internet, but that, it's a good one. You know, I think that's right. Uh, it also, you know, and the world was so much bigger. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's it. You know, so I well, I don't know if you know about this about me, but I'm a huge roller coaster nut. No, I do know that, and yeah. um, uh, sort of encyclopedic on roller coasters, and I know pretty much everything about every roller coaster in the US but of course I haven't been on them all but this is a problem I mean I'll never show up at an amusement park now most people would think who cares this is a weird thing but but this is my thing right, right. so if I will never show up at an amusement park well firstly I'll know where all the amusement parks are so I'll never stumble across one either I'll never go on vacation to California and watch a TV commercial and think oh wow there's an amusement park in here maybe I should go there but I'll never show up in an amusement park without knowing the name and the color and the height and the speed and the layout of pretty much everything that is already in the park. And that's really – I mean, yes, it's weird of me that I know that. But it, it's also – that's what the internet does. And, you know, as a kid, I would sit at home and I would look all this up right? because I couldn't go there myself. But, but that's what we do with everything. I mean, there is just there – is, there is no and, – and, and it's actually rational to do it because you don't want to – you don't say, well, I'm going to spend all the money that I've saved this year on a fantastic trip for me and my wife to Paris, but I'm not going to read about the hotel first. Right, right. You know, and then you get there and it's, it's in a crime area and, and it's horrible and you know, there's cockroaches everywhere. It, it, so it's totally rational to do it, but it's also really sad because you can't really avoid it. The way you do it is through the internet and the internet's multimedia. And so by the time you get there, you think, oh, I've already seen this place. Yeah, yeah. It occurs to me that this, probably also, uh, uh, this is probably also true of uh, prostitutes. 
you know, there was a time where you just never knew when you called <laughs> called up for one who would come to your door. But now you've checked them out on the web. But I, I don't know about this personally, but uh, maybe there's a lot of bait and switch. I kind of assume there is, but still, um, you know, let's let us let us shed a single tear for the uh, um, for the lack of the joy of surprise for the uh, for the prostitute that comes to your door. Um, anyway, Charlie, thank you for doing this. I really prefer to do it in person. Well, we'll do it in person next time. And, uh, you know, that would be great. And uh, see how seamlessly I just invited myself back on your show. I, I did notice that. I did notice that, which is very un-British of you. Um, yeah, well, I'm an American now. So. That's true. It, 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 frankly, it's very Floridian of you. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to talk it's about the weather. We have to talk about Florida at some point because it, 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 there's a lot of nice things in Florida. But it is still indisputably America's tackiest state. But we'll just have to come to that another time. All right. It's a pleasure. All right, man. Thanks for coming. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. So uh, Charlie left the building, as it were. He was doing this from New York, actually, which kind of bums me out. I mean, one of the again, one of the reasons why I don't like doing these things by Skype is that I, I think at least with some people, you get a more like Charlie's actually a very animated, funny guy to talk to in person. And he was a little, uh, he, he seemed a little distant and cerebral. I mean, it was still really interesting, but um, um, it would have been more fun where I could make fun of him in person and he could give back. But that's just my sense of it. What did you think of the, uh, Jack, what did you think of the thing, uh, the conversation? Uh, well, I wish that you guys had talked about the Beatles a little bit more. Because uh, I know. Or at all? Yeah, at all. <laughs> I don't think, I think you mentioned, I think you said the Beatles once at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But Charlie fitting with or lord cook excuse me mm-hmm. i have to use this proper title oh wait no this is america we don't use titles you used ability. to call him british shaggy no you <laughs> so our summer intern has been going through past episodes to create new show notes and he told me today that alec you... dent yeah fun young man he uh, he told me earlier today that you in a past episode you told me that you that i called him that i have never called him that that is what you call him you, never have i said that i think he looks like a young chuck norris that's what I think. But you, this is you, all you, not me. No, no, no. Right, let's just set the record straight. You referred to him as British Shaggy a few times about a year and a half ago. And I was like, I was a little surprised by it. And you said, well, that's what you call him. And so I think you got it from me. Yeah. But then you started using it when I sort of did it as a one-off thing. So there's that. But he did, And when he, look, when he first started at National Review, he was this young guy. We sent him off to Occupy Wall Street, and because he looked— You sent him to the protest, or you sent him off to Occupy Wall Street? We sent him off to the protest and do sort of man-in-the-street viral video interviews kind of thing. Yeah. And and because he looked like one of them, right? I um, mean, he, 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 he looked like—he was unshaven, he has long hair, he was a hippie, he had a British accent. And in America, we think that anybody who has a British accent is either a Nazi in a World War II movie— or just smarter and better than us, right? Uh-huh. And and so he would get people to talk to him, and he was fearless about it. But he looked like British Shaggy, Shaggy from Scooby Doo. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't remember who first said it. I'm not sure I coined it, but I called Charlie British Shaggy once or twice, and then I recall that you started saying it, and uh, it became a thing. And now you're saying now you want no part of it because you know you want to get good in good with with Charlie. I guess I don't know. Uh, here I. <laughs> I'm just happy I have my own podcast now where I can defend myself from this from this vicious calumny. I see. Um, but no, I wish you talked about the Beatles more, and uh, I I want to 
I would have mentioned, if I were on the podcast, I would have talked about Ringo, because I don't think Ringo gets enough love, but this, I'm biased here, because Ringo and I have the same birthday, not the same birth year, although wouldn't that be a fun twist? I would, you'd not be working for me if you did. Uh, yeah, well, maybe if I were like a, an immortal being, like people think Keanu Reeves is, and I'm just cycling through lives, then I would, I would be like, oh, I guess I have to pretend to be a young professional again, but... No, I would, I would, one of my life dreams is to have a birthday party with Ringo Starr, but I'll, it'll never happen, which makes me sad, but. He was great in Caveman. Yeah, when the, when the mosquitoes landing on, uh, is Randy Quaid in that movie? I believe so. Yeah, when the mosquitoes landing on Randy Quaid's face. And Barbara Bach, who, um, is easy on the eyes. Uh, <laughs> not the traffic and, you know, um, stereotypes of any kind. But, no, it was a good conversation. I like, I like Brits, I like their accents. Uh, he's smart. Interesting life story. Uh, we should have him on again in person. Yeah, 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 yeah. We didn't talk about British conservatism, which I wanted to, but or or, or pit the younger, but we can, <laughs> we can do that another time. Okay, so uh, other housekeeping. Oh wait, there has been some news. Oh, while we were here, yeah, Putin is going to campaign for. No, he's not doing that. But he's coming. He's he's apparently coming to America in the fall. Like, is it settled or they're just talking about they're it? They're talking about it. Interesting. But... What could go wrong? No, I mean, <laughs> they're talking about it, but if Putin is as interested in just value-neutral discord sowing as he is, then he would want to make that happen and just to make sure that his appearance in the United States happens at a at the worst possible time for people to go through the procedural motions of, of democracy in good faith. Right. Okay, so I guess I didn't plan on this, but... Since it's in the news and we haven't talked about it here, we only briefly referenced it on the podcast, I will give you my quick two cents about the whole Helsinki thing. First of all, the walk back was the worst walk back I have ever seen in American politics in the sense that it was utterly implausible that what Trump meant to say was wouldn't (laughs) instead of would, right? So you think it was a worse walk back than the Charlottesville walk back? Which sounds like the the hit dance craze of the the 50s. It kind of does. I'm envisioning a guy in a clan hood doing the moonwalk um but uh yeah i don't really remember that walk back this walk back the problem with it was i mean it was only a year ago so <laughs> <laughs> um in trump years that's like 15 years um so first of all the wouldn't thing wouldn't doesn't fix it right <laughs> because he said lots of things he said that you know, and rich lowry had a good column about this he you know trump said that you know, did the, it was very much like Charlottesville, right? There's blame on both sides. He wouldn't criticize Russian behavior. He has this claim that the Mueller investigation is the cause of bad tensions between us and Russia, which is just on its face palpably ludicrous. And I haven't seen anybody defend that. He really wanted to embrace this idea from Putin of this sort of joint task force where the GRU and the FBI work together and that maybe we'll trade an American ambassador and Bill Browder for what? I don't know. But I mean, it was so obviously one of these things that like that the Russians understood that the Americans would never go for this. But because Trump was alone in a room, Trump couldn't see that this was an unbelievably bad idea. And and so I thought that the that even if you say wouldn't instead of would in that one sentence, the overarching whole point of his rant um, in Helsinki 
was to sort of throw the American intelligence community under the bus, to claim that they're the real enemy. He has this idea that personal relationships are ends into themselves. I mean, there's all you keep hearing about how, oh, it would be, and he says it over and over again, you know, um, it would, if we had good relations with, if we got along with Russia, it would be a good thing, not a bad thing. And it's become now like this talking point that you have to say not a bad thing after you say a good thing, as if people don't understand that implicitly not a bad thing is implied in a good thing. Yes, the uh, poet. It's a poetic device called litotes. I like it. Okay. Yes, but you can thank my high school Latin education for my knowledge of that. Your your high school Latin education has been useful for a lot of things, for me. Like that exorcism we had to perform. Yeah, but we don't talk about that. Um, but you know, getting along with Russia is not. An end. It's a means. Why do you want to get along with Russia? To do certain things, to achieve certain policy goals. But this is something we were talking about before. You know, these summits are sort of the quintessential Trumpian foreign policy gesture, where they're what Daniel Borston called a pseudo event. We don't actually get concrete advances from them, we don't get achieve policy goals, but all the world is looking at Trump, all the world gives him his attention, and then he claims, like he claimed that he got NATO to agree to all these things. There's literally zero evidence that that's true, but he says it enough, and people buy it. And now on my Twitter feed, when I say that the NATO summit wasn't successful, they say, well, what about getting the NATO members to agree to pay more money? There's no evidence that that's true other than Trump saying it, right? Um, there's no evidence that it's true that that Trump and Putin made serious um, improvements um, on our sort of foreign policy posture on any front other than the fact that he just simply asserts it. It's not true that that thing that the, the North Korean threat has been solved other than the fact that Donald Trump tweeted it. And there is it gets to this thing that me and Charlie were talking about, that that you simply are supposed to take the word of the monarch over any empirical facts on the ground or any lack of evidence or evidence to the contrary. It's just simply whatever works as a talking point. It must be the new truth. And it's very weird. And, and to see people rushing to defend the president of the United States throwing America under the bus on an international stage and basically doing this moral equivalence argument between the United States and, and Vladimir Putin's Russia um, was grotesque. And uh, so, you know, going back to this conversation I had with Charlie about will you support him, will you not support him, there is nothing Donald Trump – Donald Trump could appoint nine new justices to the Supreme Court and personally cut my taxes to zero. <laughs> I will not say that the things that he's done that he did in Helsinki were good. I don't think that would be constitutional for – the Jonah Goldberg tax rate to be zero percent. Right. It's sort of the opposite. It's sort of like a bill of attainder. You're not yeah, to like a a bill of unattainder. <laughs> right. So anyway, so other housekeeping things. Uh, I signed a whole bunch of the book plates for the book. Again, if you sell me a self addressed stamped envelope, um, I will send you a signed book plate, uh, personalized. However, you want me to do it, as long as it'll fit on a fairly modest size uh, uh, piece of paper that can be stuck in your book. It has an adhesive back. I'm happy to do it. If you want me to write weird things, so long as it's not too weird, if you know what I mean. I'm happy to do that. Just send it to courtesy of uh, the American Enterprise Institute, 1789 Mass Ave, Washington, D.C., 20036. And Jonah's name. With Jonah's name. Oh, so, yeah, I did this thing with um, Paul Ryan today. Um, are we going to be able to feed that into our feed or at least link to it in the show notes? About oh, yeah. I mean, it's on AI's website. Okay. So... It was an interesting conversation. We had a great turnout. I've known Paul Ryan for a long time, and I like Paul Ryan. And uh, at the same time, I'm not trying to criticize anybody because AI was happy to do it, and Paul Ryan's shop were great to work with. 
still kind of figuring out, trying to figure out why it happened. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad it happened. But the conversation was very short and kind of freewheeling and disjointed. And, you know, there wasn't a huge theme in the pudding. And I'm getting some grief on Twitter about not, you know, holding you know, Ryan's feet to the fire more about Trump stuff. But, you know, the thing is, is that the point of this, this thing was originally to talk about larger themes, about larger problems. Everyone knows where I come down on Trump. And not that there were any, like, major strings attached to any of this, but I... It was a think tank event. It was not a sort of a, strictly speaking, journalistic enterprise. And if I told them in advance, well, look, I'm just going to grill you about where you come down on Trump and all this kind of stuff, they said, well, you don't want to do that. They wanted to talk about the Constitution. They want to talk about tribalism and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I made it pretty clear about where I came, where I come down on this stuff. And I think if you can read a guy who has to support a caucus that spans a lot of different views on Trump, who are all running for reelection, you could still kind of see where, where Paul was coming down on it. But anyway, I think it's worth listening to. People who are interested can find at least a link to it in the show notes, and we'll see about maybe putting it into the feed or something like that. And please keep up with the reviews. Keep up with the, 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 the subscribe and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, some of these other upstart podcasts are sneaking up on me, and I, I find it outrageous. Um, in the fall, um, we're going to have some exciting new things. I don't know exactly what they are yet, but I want to talk about at least upping the frequency of this and doing some more weird things. Because as I always said, I wanted this thing to be weirder, and it's just hard to figure out um, how to do. Do you want me to ask Bigfoot if he would make an appearance? Well, or, you know, or excuse me, he or she, depending on what what kind of Bigfoot I can convince to come on here. I don't. I don't want someone just with big feet. Um, That's not what I meant. I, I mean, understand. I, what my, meant. my feet are pretty large. No, but I do think like if if Charlie were here, we should have him with his mellifluous foreign accent read some passages of Bigfoot erotica. Um, oh, missed opportunity. Yeah, but I mean, I can't. Do you have do any it. other British friends in this area? Um, I'm sure I do. I'm not sure I have many. Like Ian Murray from CEI, I could probably get him to come here and read some Bigfoot erotica. Um, the clarion call has been sounded. <laughs> the beacons are lit. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, thanks again to everybody who's listening. I am leaving. I'm very excited about this. I miss her terribly. I'm going to my daughter's visiting day uh, on Saturday at her sleepaway camp. She's been gone for, for a month. And um, we are bringing supplies as if it's the Berlin airlift because apparently that's vital to do. And then next week I am going to be on the road. I'm doing something in Aspen for the Aspen Institute. And then I'm going to be in Newport Beach. And... Uh, and then I'll be back here, but we're going to podcast from the West Coast and see if we can figure all that out. Jack, do you have, how's your podcast? How's your how's your niche podcast going? Uh, I accept that designation for the time <laughs> being. Uh, that's kind of what it is. It's uh, we're going to record another episode this weekend on the uh, one of the subjects we'll be discussing: the Dark Knight. Its tenth anniversary was yesterday of its release. Oh, very good. Yeah, which I think unequivocally the best superhero movie, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, well, it's not really, like, it's the only superhero movie that is truly not one. It's basically a, it's sort of like a remake of Heat, but they put masks on Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. It's kind of what it is. And it's like a, it's like a crime caper with capes. And in that sense, it's the only comic book movie that's, like, truly transcended its genre. I think it's defensible, but, but it's still of that genre, right? I yeah, mean, I mean, there's a guy with a, with a, a, a with pointy ears running around, a pointy ears and a cape running around punching people. Which yeah. is, 
I mean, that that also may describe my day, but <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, well. And, and why young people are starting to like socialism is the other thing we're planning to talk about. Okay, and the uh, title of your podcast is? Young Americans on Ricochet. And people can find it at Ricochet? Uh-huh. And uh, on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play now. Well, there you go. Um, man, I really, I, it was wise of me to hitch my wagon to Ricochet. They're they're a good place. Yeah. They yeah. know what they're doing. They do. They do. Um, uh, I can think of some other wagons you were luckier to hitch yourself to. But, hey, you know, you know I'm not, you know, I'm not going to begrudge any of that. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, by the time you hear this, I'll have already done it, but I'll be on Special Report tonight. And I'll be on NPR in the morning. Um, very early in the morning, and uh, then I got to write a G file real quick. So, thanks again, and I'll see you next week. No, you won't. This is a podcast. I apologize. You're really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I apologize unreservedly.